Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today's preacher is Donald Gray Barnhouse. He was a pioneer in preaching over the radio. His program was known as the Bible Study Hour. In 1949, he began a weekly in-depth study of the Book of Romans on his program, which lasted until his death. Today, Dr. Barnhouse presents a study and discussion of Romans 8.28. Jesus Christ, we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank thee for thy love, thy love which knows us into the depths of our being and yet loves us just the same. We thank thee for this great grace and kindness of thine heart. Thou hast not looked upon us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Thy name and nature are love and we rejoice in thee. Bless now thy word as we speak of thine eternal plan and use it to the glory of thy great name through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We are studying now in Romans 8 and come to one of the greatest and best known verses of the Bible. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God to them who are the called according to his purpose. Most Christians know the text which now engages our attention. Almost any group of ten memory verses will include this one. And it is quoted and misquoted, applied and misapplied in thousands of cases every day. It is partially misunderstood beyond most partial misunderstandings. And it is wrongly understood by many. With its discussion, we enter into one of the greatest controversial points of Christian theology. For the whole of the doctrines of election and predestination now come before us. And if we are to remain honest, we must treat them with the frankness and candor which we have desired to bring to all our discussions. All these studies have been prepared for weekly radio broadcasts. And as they have been prepared, there's been some discussion with my associates as to what would happen when we reached this portion of our exposition. The reason for this is Christ's statement that the world will hate the believer because of the truth of this doctrine. The world does not hate the believer because some misguided ones try to reform the world. Unbelievers are more or less accustomed to social service cleanups. Let a group of reformers announce a drive against gambling, and the gamblers move over to the next county until the effort blows over. They know that reformers never, never sustain their reform movements. Let another group move in to clean a city in the realm of liquor, burlesque shows, or any other matter that reformers with their peculiar mentality think needs mending, and the worldly people tolerantly wait till the crusade blows over. But let any Christian announce that all men deserve to go to hell, but that God is going to take some to heaven by a work of redemption which he has provided by himself apart from men, and that he is going to save individuals without respect to their character or good works, 
and immediately the most vicious hatreds are manifest. This hatred even carries over into the midst of Christianity. For within the borders of our general faith, there are those who have adopted doctrines which will not stand the test of biblical pressure. And these, perhaps, are the most vehement of all in their animosity toward the great biblical truth. When Christ was here on earth, he made a sharp distinction between those whom he called his own and the others whom he called the world. This difference and distinction is most sharply made in the gospel according to John. A casual glance at a concordance will realize that the word world is to be found three or four times in each of the first three Gospels, but it is to be found more than 40 times in the Gospel according to John. Rigidly, the Lord Jesus drew the line across the face of humanity, dividing all men into two groups, those whom he had chosen and those whom he had not chosen. There is not the remotest suggestion that he chose some on the basis of any goodness in themselves or that he did it on the basis of some faith which originated in themselves. Entering into the upper room with his disciples for the Last Supper and his final instructions to them, we read that when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. Now from that first moment, he drew the lines between those whom he called his own and the others whom he called the world. And do not think for a moment that the term world means the earth ball merely or the totality of civilization. The world is Christ's term for the world of unbelievers. Listen, I will pray the Father and he will give you another comforter, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more, but ye see me. And the other Judas asked him, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us, and not unto the world? This was in the 14th chapter. And the answer, a chapter later, showed that there was no doubt of the distinction between the two groups of people. If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Now it is the last portion of this text that is of greatest significance for our purpose in explaining our present text. Because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you, elected you out of the world, therefore, because of the truth of election, therefore the world hateth you. Now, this hatred for the doctrine of election not only exists in the attitude of the unregenerate world toward those whom God has saved, but it also exists in the midst of the church. One of the quickest ways to note the difference between the tares and the wheat is that the tares hate the doctrine of election. But it must be said that while all tares hate the doctrine of election, there are also some true believers who hate it at first and come out of that hatred very slowly. 
It is never possible for us to determine the full identity of wheat and tares. It is not our business to attempt this distinction. In fact, the Lord warned his disciples to leave that work for the separating angels who would do it perfectly at the end of the age. For, he indicated, some of his wheat looks so much like the devil's growing that you could never tell them apart. This is the sure implication of his direct words in which he commanded his disciples not to seek to root up tares lest they gather some of his wheat with them. And there are very many who now believe in election who testify that they were once angered by the truth. With this introduction, we return to the great text and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. The relation of this text to the doctrine of election lies in the verse which precedes it and the verse that follows it. The verse that goes before we have already studied. We saw that the Holy Spirit dwells within us and that he is making intercession for all of us, the saints, the people of God, according to God or according to the will of God, as some of the translations have it. As our text begins with a conjunction, it is linked to this fact that the Holy Spirit is directing our lives in accordance with a definite plan of God. The end of our text says that it refers to those who are the called according to his purpose. That is, according to the purpose of God, known to the Holy Spirit, and which causes him to pray within us with groanings that cannot be uttered. Finally, the text that follows this one enlarges on the nature of the divine purpose by saying that those who were chosen by God were predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now, the first and most important conclusion that must be drawn from these indications is that God has a definite plan that originated in himself, and that is from eternity to eternity. We can strengthen this conclusion by quoting our text from one or two of the modern translations. That of Monsignor Knox in England says, Meanwhile, we are well assured that everything helps to secure the good of those who love God, those whom he has called in fulfillment of his design. All those who from the first were known to him, he has destined from the first to be molded into the image of his son, who is thus to become the eldest born among many brethren. Phillips renders it. Moreover, we know that to those who love God, who are called according to his plan, everything that happens fits into a pattern for good. God, in his foreknowledge, chose them to bear the family likeness of his son, that he might be the eldest of a family of many brothers. Now, it is not inconsistent with the magnitude of this concept that Phillips should have capitalized the word plan in stating that we are called according to that divine plan. Once we know that all things are happening according to a divine plan, our hearts and minds can be at rest. And God says it is not possible for any man to be at complete rest until he is aware of this great truth. An elderly minister carried a bookmark in his Bible that was made of silk threads woven into a motto. The back of it was a tangled web of crossed threads that seemed to be without reason or purpose. 
when he had to call in some home where there was great trouble, sorrow, or death, he would frequently show this bookmark, presenting the reverse side with all its unintelligible tangle. When the bereaved one had examined it intently without finding any explanation for the seeming disorder, the minister would ask him to turn the marker over. Immediately, against the white silk background, there was the phrase in colored threads, God is love. Now that side made sense. And it is thus with all of the tangled patterns of life for the one who has been called according to this divine plan. When we know this fact, we can be at peace with the world around us because we are at peace within our own souls. And we are at peace within our own souls because we are at peace with our Heavenly Father. There are two ways whereby we can know of the existence of this divine plan. The one is the simple acceptance by faith of the divine declaration that there is the heavenly plan and that we have been called according to purpose. The chief passage of the scripture which bears on this revelation in addition to our present text is to be found in the first of Ephesians. There we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He destined us in love to be his sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. For he has made known to us in all wisdom and insight the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, in him according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will. We who first hoped in Christ have been destined and appointed to live for the praise of his glory. But in addition to this plain setting forth of the fact of the plan and its existence, there is the whole logic of the divine revelation. Anyone who gives really serious attention to the Bible must come to the conclusion that God is working all things out according to his eternal plan. Let us look at this second way of establishing the truth. It comes from a series of propositions that are inherent in the Bible. The first proof that there is a divine plan lies in the fact that God is perfect. We know that the Bible everywhere teaches the perfection of God, and the truth of his divine purpose must flow from this very nature of God. God is perfect in his power. He is omnipotent. God is perfect in his wisdom. He is omniscient. God is eternal in his being. He has always known all things and has always been able to do all things. Then fourth, God is the creator. All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. 
Now, in the fifth place then, since God created all things, he created Lucifer. Six, when he created Lucifer, he knew that this creature would rebel and become Satan. Seven, God could have created Lucifer otherwise than he did if he had wished to. We must conclude, therefore, in our eighth proposition that God has an eternal plan that includes all things, even the fall of Lucifer and the entrance of sin into the universe. Now, at this point, we must be careful not to make a mistake that has been made by some people living in our day. For some have pointed out that since God is perfect and he has created all things, and since a perfect God could not do anything that was not perfect, that therefore, they say, everything must be perfect. And if it appears that there is anything that is not perfect, it is an error in our mortal mind that conceives the imperfection. But this is not the case. Because of further teachings of the Word of God, which lead us to see the whole of his great plan. We continue with the proposition that ninth, God is perfect in his holiness. Therefore, ten, when sin entered the universe, God perfectly judged it. Eleven, as a result of God's perfect judgment of sin, the laws of sin, sickness, decay, dissolution, erosion, and disintegration entered the universe. And twelve, thus we conclude that the horrors that are in this world of sin came from the perfect judgments of a perfect God and are not errors of mortal mind. Now, all of this has introduced us into the middle of the vast subject of the plan of God. When we know that God has a plan, all of these propositions become clear to us, and their clarity, in turn, points backward to the existence of the divine plan. If someone should object that we're teaching that the propositions prove the existence of the plan and that the plan proves the truth of the proposition, we will answer that in a sense they're correct. Truth always buttresses all other truth. We recognize this in the scientific world where mathematical formulae lay the groundwork for physical experiment and the explosion of an atomic bomb demonstrates the truth of the mathematical formulae. Divine truth in the realm of pure theology is no less truthful than mathematics and is all the more satisfying because we have the superiority over the physical sciences in that we do not have to proceed by trial and error towards our conclusions but can accept them from the divine revelation. It is only when men refuse to believe that there is difficulty. Men may cling to traditions and by the force of their positions can impel some Galileo to recant. But even while he signs the recantation, he whispers that the earth does move. Now the divine plan does not need human support. It will sometimes appear contradictory to human illusions. The pride of fallen man wishes to maintain its dignity. But in the long run, it is always brought to confusion, and the simplicity of truth is made manifest. There is a beautiful illustration of this in an architectural phenomenon which I saw in Spain. Just outside of Madrid, 
There is the famed Escorial, ancient monastery of the Augustinians, the order that produced Martin Luther. The kings of Spain have been buried there for centuries, and the church is a magnificent example of stately beauty. The architect who built the building made an arch that was so flat that it frightened the king. Supported by the power of his might, the king ordered the architect to add a column that would uphold the middle of the arch. The architect remonstrated that it was not necessary, but the king insisted, yea, commanded. The column was built. Years later, the king died. And the architect then revealed that the column was a quarter of an inch short of the arch and that the arch had never sagged in the slightest. Today, the guides have a method of passing a laugh between the arch and the column, which has stood through the centuries as a mute proof of the rightness of the architect's knowledge. Now, the propositions that we present in support of the truth of the plan of God are not human arguments but truths in detail taken from the scripture which support the whole of the truth of the plan, just as the whole supports all the parts. They need no human column to buttress them. Men build their little columns, but God has a way of just making them fall a bit short, so that in the end it can always be demonstrated that the column, like the arch, rests on its own foundations and needs no other support. And now, as we move away from this individual text to the point of vantage of the whole of the divine revelation, we must immediately conclude that the plan of God is centered in the glory of God, the glory of Christ, and the glory of the elect, whom he chose before the foundation of the world. We can readily understand that anything that God would do, he would do, have to do, for his own glory, because of his perfectness. If any of us did anything at all for our own glory, it would be presumptuous pride. Because God is absolutely perfect, he must glory in those perfections, since there could be nothing better. This is why any deviation from his will is sin and must be pursued with relentless judgment. This is why he alone can furnish salvation, for there could be salvation in none other. Therefore, his plan must center in the perfections of his own being and in the perfections which he wishes to bring to us. Then, since God is love, and the center of his love is Christ, he must have his plan center in the person and the work of his Son. For in him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. As we read the entire Bible, we can come to no other conclusion than that God the Father never had a thought apart from the Lord Jesus Christ and his glory. And finally, there is the most amazing fact of all, 
the plan of God includes the glory of the elect, the glory of those who are the called according to his purpose. Once again, we note that our text lies in between two other texts that are concerned with the work of God within us. The Holy Spirit is within us, making intercession for us according to the will of God. The entire order of circumstances is working together for our good because we have been called according to his divine plan. And all of this was because of his eternal decree, here called foreknowledge, but which does not mean mere advanced knowledge, as we shall see, but eternal decision on the part of God that we should become like Christ. Into these mysteries we will feel our way in the coming study. And our God and Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit will bless this truth to each and every heart in this hour. And to thee be the glory and praise through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You've been listening to Donald Gray Barnhouse. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.